Rick Yant, welcome to the Earthy Delights podcast. Thank you for coming on. Um, what's the crack? How are you doing? I'm doing well, Seb. Doing well. I'm happy to be here and appreciate the chance to talk to you about what we're doing here at Warrior Canine Connection. Oh, absolutely. No, no, no problem. Absolute pleasure from our side. Um, you know, for people who maybe aren't aware, I spoke to Meg Dolmer and we did a, an amazing podcast with her and she kind of opened my mind to what it is that the potential that dogs have. Um, and within that, she uh, spoke briefly about the your association, your charity, and she got me into contact with you, um, thankfully. And so for people who aren't, maybe aren't aware of what it is that you guys do, could you just give us a brief a brief outline of what it is that the Warrior Canine Connection does? Yeah, certainly. Uh, the Warrior Canine Connection is a, it's a charity, as you mentioned. We breed gold retrievers and Labrador retrievers to become service dogs for veterans. What's really unique about our program model is that we engage veterans who are struggling with recovering from post-traumatic stress uh, disorder and traumatic brain injuries. And we teach them how to help us train these dogs to become service dogs for their fellow battle buddies. Perfect. And how did you get into this, into this sector, into this field of, of research and, and help? Yeah, I, I uh, have been a, a licensed social worker for, you know, going back, um, 30 plus years, but I was um, gifted a golden retriever puppy from two dear friends uh, in the, the Christmas of 1995. And uh, I was systematically trained by a then eight week old golden retriever puppy who every day when I was leaving to go to work um, would stare me down at the door. And one morning had convinced me that if I didn't take him uh, he would certainly succumb to his uh, his trauma, <laughs> and I so I took him to work with me, uh, working with children in in specialized foster care, uh, without a plan. I, I had no plan, but I knew that I had to take this puppy with me um, for those reasons. And did you see a, a big change in the children once you took once you took the puppy with you? Uh, and no, and is that where the kind of the light bulb switched? Yeah, the light bulb switched uh, early in that that morning that I took him, uh, received a call from Child Protective Services. We had to remove an 11 year old boy from a very bad, you know, home situations. And uh, so I arrived with the Child Protective Services worker and a four month old golden retriever puppy. uh, And just we were taking this young man from everything he knew and taking him to live with a family he'd never met in a county that he'd never been. And he was just, his heart was broken. And this sobbing boy was um, uh, in the back of my car, all of a sudden went silent, uh, probably five minutes into the drive. And I looked in my mirror and saw this golden retriever pup with his head in this little boy's lap. And uh, that's how I fell into this field many years ago. What a, what a beautiful story. I mean, dogs do have that power. It's pretty incredible. I think um, I was saying to you before we started this podcast that I think anyone who's had dogs or, or pets of that matter, actually, or any animal um, kind of recognize instinctively, intuitively that animals are good for us, that they make us better versions of ourselves. But I don't think we recognize how. I don't think we understand how to harness that power. We just take it as like a byproduct of having a pet. Um do you find that when when you started this field and maybe even now that you've 
had resistance or that you people have kind of when you've told people about what it is that you do you maybe get a, an odd glance and oh that's a bit woo woo or that's a bit far-fetched or do people kind of readily accept the potential that dogs have to help veterans um reintegrate into society and, and help them overcome their ptsd no, I, you know, I, there was a, quite a bit of resistance back at the beginning of starting this. You had the, the looks of what what are you doing with your dog here at work? And uh, you had to develop uh, an ability to kind of uh, go past that. And uh, as we say, the proof is in the pudding. And uh, it, those people that were giving me the odd looks, uh, you know, Soon afterwards, uh, when they were dealing with a, a difficult situation with one of the, the families they were working with, they would call me over to bring my dog uh, because it worked, you know. And, and uh, when you have something that works and works very, very well, you, uh, it makes sense to explore that and continue doing it. Of course. Because, frankly, there's a lot of things that don't work very well. Um, so that that's, you know, I, it, it breathed new life into my career because when you're working with traumatized kids and families, um, it takes a tool if you care. Um, and when the tools that you have are not all that effective um, and you're trying to, you know, change people's lives for the better, um, having tools that do work exceptionally well, just it makes a world of difference, uh, you know, to everyone involved. And what took you from working with kids to then taking that leap and then working with veterans? Because like you said, if you found something that's worked, why, you know, if, you, if it's not, if it's not broke, don't fix it type thing. You know, why wouldn't you just stay in your sector? You you've got a wealth of experience with kids and now you've got this magic potion, which is a dog that can help you, go further in that career why would you not kind of stay there and specialize there what what was the idea or what led you to working with veterans yeah that's a great question i i um stumbled upon a program where they were working with uh incarcerated teens and teaching them to train service dogs uh in an effort to build their self-esteem and when i saw this program uh from my perspective i i saw the parenting um, opportunities to teach parenting skills um, in the dog training, you know, and I, I was going into court very often and, and testifying to a judge and saying, you know, it's clear that these parents, they love their children, but it's also very clear that they can't safely or adequately parent them. Hmm. And the dog training to train service dogs, you know, required uh, a very tight bond with the dog that you were training, a relationship. And you had to be consistent and you had to regulate your emotional state when the dogs were not following through with what you wanted them to do. And most um, importantly, you had to use an effective praise tone, a praise voice to reinforce the behaviors. And I, I saw that as the four fundamental pillars of effective parenting. Mm -hmm. And what really excited me at the time was, and still does, is that you had an opportunity there to experientially teach 
the core elements of effective parenting to teens you had had identified as high risk before they had children. And I thought that would be the most sensible way to break the cycle of abuse and neglect was to be able to give them the tools that they needed. Um, and, you know, it's experiential learning something is the, the most powerful method of, of teaching. You know, you, you can't teach patience by telling someone, someone to be patient. <laughs> right. You know? But you can learn patience by practicing patience. Right. And uh, again, you know, to be able to see how having a relationship affects the responsiveness of these dogs um, is is really a great way to to show the importance of having a bond or an attachment with your children as well. Mm. That's what really drew my uh, attention to service dog training and led me to get uh, that that training um, it, to create a program back then um, this was in 2001 my goal was to create a program working with teens in an alternative high school teens that had been expelled uh, from the the um, the county the public school system and to be able to teach them how to train service dogs for people in the community again, to, to, you know, to, to interfere with that cycle of abuse and, and give them those skills. Um, the dogs that the teens helped to train, um, when it came time for them to be ready to graduate, I had several veterans who had applied for service dogs. That's when the shift really happened. Um, right. Because I became aware that uh, veterans were waiting for many, many years to find a, a, a service dog that was available, if there was one. And um, that's when the shift started. Um, this program model really came to be, I think, I would say in 2005, um, PTSD was being talked about much more frequently um, as you know, the very, very bloody times in Iraq and Afghanistan and Fallujah. Um, it, it, you know, you kind of wake up with an idea. Um, and my idea was who better to train, help train a service dog for a veteran than a veteran. And, uh, and I started working on, you know, putting this idea on paper and, as a, a social worker, I knew about trauma and PTSD from the kids that I work with, but not specifically combat related trauma. And so I started studying more and trying to talk with veterans that were coming back from Iraq and, and learning firsthand. And every symptom or every symptom cluster for you know post-traumatic stress disorder, I could find a very tangible way of how the training of these service dogs could be used to mitigate you know, or address those symptoms. It was um, it wasn't difficult to you know draw the parallels, right? And, and what's the you know most? I imagine that most people listening to this podcast, the fact they've seen dog in the title or canine in the title, probably have clicked on it, and they're probably dog lovers themselves. So, but what's the difference between you know what are the 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 difference between having a pet just as a as a citizen? the general public like myself i've got a jack russell so the needs that i would want or 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 need from a dog as a pet 
to what a veteran needs from a service dog? What what is the difference there? Well, for a service dog, we're talking about dogs that you know have access to the you know the public that feel comfortable going out into crowds and riding in you know trains and airplanes and they go everywhere um, with that that veteran. Um, you know, there's a lot of similarities. I'm sure you know um, people and their pets and and what their pets do for them at home. Um, and and frankly, the you know one one dog might make a perfect match for me and might not be a perfect match for you. Right. Um, there's um, there's the personality element or dogality. I guess it might be more proper. <laughs> Um, I, I often joke when, you know, matching a veteran with a service dog, um, you know, it's not first come first serve. Uh, I, I, you know, many have heard of this, uh, match, uh, you know, .com or eHarmony. Right. Said we, instead of eHarmony, we use dHarmony. You know, your, <laughs> your profiles, uh, have to match. Um, and, and that, that's a, a large part of the success of a service dog team. The veteran is is getting to know the dogs that you have and also getting to know the veterans very well that have applied to receive a dog and and matching them up correctly uh, there's an art to that it's um, I, I want you, i was actually just going to ask um ask you that question so if you could elaborate on that on what makes that art what is that art because you know a lot of us who have had dogs as general public um whether that's through adoption or through we've bought the dog you know, even adoption, they try to pay you, but in reality, they, they're so full and they'll just, as long as they see that you're a decent person, that you will take care of the dog more often than not, they'll kind of, they'll they'll, they'll let you have the dog. Um, and when you obviously buy a dog, you just buy it pro- probably based on the breed, the maybe the look and some health characteristics, you know, you know, it's a good breeder and so on. But you don't really have that bonding process to say, oh, actually, that puppy is not right for you. If I were you, I would actually go for this one. I know it's not got the spotted eye that you want, but trust me, it's a better fit. We don't, you know, the general public don't really have that. We we kind of create the bond afterwards, after it's already in the house, where it's almost like, well, we have to create the bond now because me and you, buddy, there's no other choice. So how do Four you... Pages. Yeah, exactly. So how do you create that bond um, with confidence beforehand and match these two individuals? And then, you know, knowing that, okay, now that these two are together, I'm fully confident they'll work out because it's not like a friendship where two humans can speak for each other and for themselves and they can go, oh, no, he's not my kind of guy. I don't really like him. You know, with a dog, how do you how do you gauge that? Yeah, I think it's getting to know dogs really well. And uh, again, getting to know the people that you're serving very well. Um, you know, some of the, the, the most basic elements of the social styles are, you know, how assertive is the person and how assertive is the dog? That's a key element. You wouldn't want a dog that's very assertive with a person who's not assertive. Right. The dog would walk all over them and, and you wouldn't want the opposite either you know you, you need to uh, kind of capture that perfect or well relatively perfect balance of uh, you want the person to be slightly more assertive than the dog right and then there's a social element you know how socially responsive is the dog uh, and the person you know you wouldn't want uh, uh, 
a, a person who's very, very shy and, and reserved with a dog that is, you know, a party animal, uh, <laughs> you'd want, uh, you know, some, some balance there as well. Yeah. But it, it's, it's also the training of the veteran when they come to, to receive a dog or even those who enter our program, training program to help train the dogs. I, I'm constantly um, challenging this idea that dogs are non-judgmental beings. I don't know who started that, but they obviously didn't have a dog because, you know, these dogs are, um, they're very capable of trying to treat a new person as if they were a substitute teacher in junior high school. They're, you know, they, they, and our dogs aren't in a position where they, they're, you know, we're not compulsively training them, you know, we're not forcing them to do things or using fear-based techniques. It's very much relationship-based. Um, but the dogs will, you know, there's a, there's a, a period of time where they will test who you are and they will pretend like they're deaf and they will pretend like they don't know their name or didn't hear, you know, and that the veteran, um, when they come into our program, we're teaching them this, you know, you have to be consistent, you have to be patient, but you also have to hold the dog accountable and, and right. show the dog that you know that they know their name and you know that they know the word sit. Um, and it's, it's just that first few days uh, really is most critical in establishing that respectful relationship with the dog, that uh, the dogs develop respect for the person um, but the dogs will try to have fun with them and test them out. I'm it's really part glad, of the, part I'm, of the deal. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that point up because when speaking to Meg uh, Dolmer, she she kind of raised a very similar point. She said, you know, I don't know where people get this idea that dogs give unconditional love. She said, you know, if you beat your dog every day of the week, there'll come a point where your dog goes, that's it, I've had enough. Like, they're not going to carry on loving you. Like, you know, people, and I think... I think the thing is, and I may be wrong here, but I think as most nations are, are dog loving. And so I think we try to romanticize dogs and make them out to be these beings. And so we think by saying, oh, they give unconditional love, you know, and this, yeah. that, and the other, we think that that actually puts them on a pedestal. But in reality, when you analyze that statement, what you're actually saying is the dog's stupid. Because if you get yes. unconditional love, regardless of the behavior coming towards you as a person, you go, oh, that person's an idiot because they're in an abusive relationship and they're still loving this person. They need to kind of, they, they can't see the wood for the trees for another, for, for lack of a better expression. And I think that's the problem is that we think of, we're trying to elevate dogs and their status. And I don't think we found the right terminology for it yet, but I'm really glad you brought that point up because it's not that dogs give unconditional love, but I think the what the point that we try to get across as humans is maybe that the love that a dog gives feels more pure because it, yes. it feels like it doesn't come with attachments or, or, or with criteria that need to be met. As long as you're a good person, that dog will love you no matter what. It doesn't matter if you're a homeless person or you have the biggest house in the world, the dog will love you. Whereas with humans, maybe we have a few criteria, a few boxes that need to be ticked before we're, before we're happy to fall in love with someone. Um, but yeah, very uh, good point. And I'm glad that you brought it up. Um, they're, they're more forgiving, I would say. Yes, and they, exactly. And they have different 
perspective than us. But, uh, yes. You're exactly right. They're, they are not stupid. And right. uh, I would say they're non-judgmental in their, their ability to test everyone on the same playing field. Right. You know, they don't care if, uh, if it's a, a general or a private, and they don't care if I'm the executive director. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it, it, it's very even their playing field. Exactly that. And um, you said at the start that you, so you breed um, Labradors and Golden Retrievers, if I'm correct. Uh, what is it that makes, that made you choose that breed particularly? I mean, that's probably, I may be wrong here, but I think that's probably the most popular um, dog breed in terms of pets. Um, uh, but what is it that makes them good for service dogs and, and for veterans that need to reintegrate in society and overcome their PTSD? Yeah, I think historically they've shown a, a kind of higher level of success in becoming, uh, making the grade to become service dogs. They're relatively large, um, and for their size, they typically live a, a longer life. Um, they're very agile, um, and uh, they're they're also you know have a long history of working with with humans. So. They uh, have more natural tendencies to connect, I think, with, with people. Um, one of the, the, the benefits of these breeds, these floppy-eared breeds, is, you know, when they're going out into the, into crowds and communities, they don't represent um, a threat. You know, they're typically perceived by the public as uh, friendly, right. friendly dogs. And uh, we're working with veterans uh, who are often struggling with reintegrating back in the community that tend to isolate. And the last thing we want to do is give them a dog that's, uh, is promoting isolation, you know, where people are crossing the street because they see a dog that might be posing a threat. Um, I like the fact that the dog is, uh, really serves as a connection kind of topic and tool. You know, the dog actually pulls people towards the veteran, um, and and that's a really important part of what these dogs can do for breaking down isolation, which is a deadly aspect of PTSD. Mm. I'm really glad that you brought that point up because um, it's something, again, that I spoke about with Meg. And it was, uh, we got a puppy um, uh, in November of last year. Uh, and this is because I've always had dogs in my life and so has my girlfriend, but we recently moved out to Spain um, and in Spain, you live in flats. My my girlfriend and I, we both have had bigger dogs. She's had Labradors as she was growing up, and I've always had German Shepherds. And so to to have that in a flat never seemed in Spain it's accepted, but to us it kind of felt somewhat cruel. Um, so we never really thought of getting a dog. But then circumstances with Corona changed, and basically my job is now almost full time at home. So I work from home almost completely, um, and I really I felt lonely throughout the day until my girlfriend came back and I felt like I needed a dog and I thought it's the perfect time to get one now that I can work from home and I can you know be with that dog almost all day every day there's no reason not to get one um so we decided to get a smaller breeze which is something new for us and we got a Jack Russell anyway as um as the COVID restrictions started to loosen up and we were starting to allow to be allowed back out and to take him for walks and and you know people were out in bars and whatever else one of the real good side effects, but that was completely unexpected from me, maybe naively, was the ability that that dog gave me to form community. 
And, you know, I live in Madrid now, and most people think that if you live in a big city, it's very isolated. You know, you have your friends, but that's it. You don't talk to the news agents or the, or the local barista or whatever it might be because you're in a big city and you're just a number, right? And uh, now that I've got this dog, people, I mean, people don't really care about me, but they know that I'm the owner of the dog. And so I now know my my local news agents because... He, my dog will run into that news agent because that news agent gives him cuddles every single morning. I now know my local pharmacist because the pharmacist leaves a bowl of water out on the on the uh, as the Americans say sidewalk or on the path for English for our English listeners. And our, my dog, you know, will have a little drink, and the pharmacist will come out and we'll have a little chat. And so through having a dog, I've created my own little community in the borough yes. in which I live, and it's something that was completely unexpected to me. And I can't over, you know, I can't overestimate the, the importance of that. And Meg spoke about how, how for, for the blind people, how that's such a big, a big thing for them because a lot often with blind people, you know, the general public don't know how to interact because you might say a faux pas, you might say, "Oh, did you see the match last night?" And they go, "Oh shit!" Of course, they didn't see yeah, the match. Yeah. They're blind. Yeah. Whereas when you've got a dog, you can talk to the the blind person about the dog and you know I, I imagine for a service um for a veteran that must be so important that that bridge with from themselves to the general public that allows them to start off talking about the dog but maybe eventually helps them integrate into that society and, and form community once again yes absolutely it's uh and the fact that for service dogs that's a, a large part of the training process is you know getting them to feel comfortable and knowing that, you know, sit means sit everywhere. You have to take them out into different environments. And by engaging our veterans uh, who tend to avoid going out into public places, but now they, they feel the sense of uh, a, a duty or mission to help train this dog for one of their fellow vets. It's, it's a motivation to get them out in the public. And exactly as you've described, when they go into the, uh, you know, the store and uh, you, you can't isolate when you have a beautiful golden retriever you know, with you in public. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it, it's uh, it's a, a catalyst for, you know, social interactions. But it's also the dog also acts as a buffer because all of the topic is going to be about that dog or their dog, and they're going to pull out their phone and show you the pictures of their dog at home. Right. So it's predictable what the conversation is going to be. Um, you know, they're, better, they're not hearing, you know, oh, what did you do overseas? And, you know, and, you know it's, it, it makes the world a friendlier place and an easier place to connect to um, because they have these dogs out in public. Um, and what's also interesting is in training a service dog, we teach the dogs to accept whatever may happen, the noises and the crowds, you know, the, the dumpster doors slamming, you know, these loud cars backfiring. As trainers, we teach the dogs to welcome those noises and events. Um, as a matter of fact, if a loud noise happens, our dogs are typically looking up to see if they're going to get a treat. And for veterans who are, those are triggering events, those loud noises, which takes them into a place where they're thinking about an IED rather than walking down the sidewalk. The responsibility that we're sharing with them to teach these dogs that the world is a safe place, that you make light of it, 
you know, when a dumpster door slams or a siren goes off, we're acting silly and giving the dog a treat. Right. And so these veterans are put into a position to help train these dogs where they have to challenge these intrusive thoughts in, in that moment and stay out of here and be centered and, and mindful, I guess, is a, another way of putting it, being aware of what the dog needs because they are the ones being you know helpful in teaching the dog that the world is a safe place. Yeah. They have to challenge thoughts in their own head that might not be. Yeah, no, it's really important. And there's a, actually some really interesting research that I came across um, a while ago, which basically stated that or found um, that when we are told to care for someone else, oh, sorry, an um, fire, um, a fire truck just driving by there, lovely. That when we are um, told to care for someone else, uh, we take better care. So that what that means is you know if a doctor says right you've got to give your dog or your nan or whatever it may be this packet of pills and it has to last over two weeks and you have to make sure they take every pill for those two weeks on on average we're more likely to do that because we feel a duty of care to that person or to that animal whereas if the doctor that same doctor gave us the exact same prescription but for ourselves and said right you need to take these pills for two weeks if we're feeling better after five or six days we might just go oh you know what it doesn't matter and leave it and we won't take all the pills that the doctors told us so we take less care of ourselves but more care of others and and that's kind of what you're speaking to there is that you know if you told a veteran that they have to do this work this internal work by themselves they might feel like they don't have to, or they might give up when it starts to get hard. But when they feel a responsibility for this animal, and not only for this animal, but for the service that for the veteran that's gonna that's gonna you know take this animal on once it's been fully trained, now all of a sudden the work isn't about them. It's not a selfish motive. It's completely yes. selfless, and that in, and that in, you know encourages them to do the work for others. But in actual fact, you're you're doing the work for yourself without realizing. I think that's the key is that they're doing this for one of their, their fellow veterans. And that is such a, a, a powerful component of their lives. Um, you know, I, I, I can't imagine a more important role uh, for someone to play than being part of a unit or platoon that your lives are uh, at stake. If, if no, if, if, Everyone has to be cohesive and do their job. And everyone has a shared responsibility to keep that unit safe. In, in essence, I think that's the ultimate sense of purpose. I can't imagine something more powerful than that. And when they're pulled away from that unit or that, that social structure, and they're you know, now hospitalized to get treatment, you know, it, it seems that that would create such a void in their, their sense of purpose. Hmm. Um, and, and that's a, a large part of how this program, you know, when I designed it was to, you know, although it's not going to fill that void, but it, it may help to fill some sense of that, you know, that purpose, even if you're in a hospital getting treatment, that you can still do something important and tangible to take care of one of your, your battle buddies. Um, I think that's, 
that that's uh, plays a large part in the success that, that I've seen over the years, um, and and which really compels veterans to do things that they would never do this for themselves. They would rather stay home and avoid that stress of going out into crowds and places. Yeah. But now they have a mission and a sense of purpose, and you know, training a service dog requires a lot of you know. Or patience. I mentioned patience, but also the communication tools that you have to employ. You know, you know, you have to be able to, you know, have an assertive type tone. You have to be able to tell the dog what you would like them to do. But one of the most challenging parts of service dog training is, especially for us, for guys, but let alone, you know, combat vets that have emotional numbing, is you have to you know, get your, your very happy voice going, you know, right, I, I call right. it, and, and if you know who Richard Simmons is, um, um, it, it's just the, the, you know, the mini mouse, high pitched tone that, uh, to train a dog successfully, you have to master that. Yeah. Um, and, and <laughs> I've had many, um, uh, Marine drill instructors who are very good at sounding assertive, but then all of a sudden I'm, you know, saying, well, you have to get your high pitched, happy voice, you know, here. And, <laughs> and, and that. <laughs> what's that? Yeah. I'm emotionally numb. I don't sound like that. And, and the conversation usually is, you know, you don't have to be happy and you don't have to talk to your buddies this way, but <laughs> right. to train this dog to be an effective service dog, you're going to have to pretend to sound happy. Yeah. And, uh, and if they don't put effort into it, the, they won't get very far in training the dog, but if they follow this directive and what they're being um, coached to do, the dogs respond and then they feel successful in teaching this dog something. So it reinforces itself. And uh, there's a concept called fake it until you make it. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and this is, here's a, a mission based reason to fake sounding happy. And uh, then it's reinforced by the dog's response. And one of the most uh, meaningful things that I've heard over the years was having a, a Marine drill instructor share that he felt that the program had saved his marriage because he had a three-year-old at home that he was being harsh with because he couldn't turn off what he did at work. He was a drill instructor in the Marine Corps, but through the training of the dog and the patience that he learned in this high pitched voice, he started applying that to his three-year-old and said that it, uh, it had saved his marriage. It taught him how to reconnect with his son on a three-year-old level. Um, and that, I, I think about that often because, you know, I, I think what's missed, greatly missed is this idea that we, our militaries, they train service members very, very effectively. And they're training them experientially. Hmm. And they're trained to be reactive. And they're trained to be able to function without emotions, getting into their, you know, interfering with what they have to do in a combat zone. And that keeps them alive. But they're coming home trained as reactive and somewhat emotionally blunted warfighters. And it's it seems ridiculous to expect that they could come home trained as that warfighter and expect to be 
that same loving, patient mom or dad that they were prior to that training. Right. Without some retraining, of course. Right. You know, we 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 train our military trains service members for each mission. You know, everything has its own nuance and they, they they're trained for whatever that mission is going to entail. I think we need to do a better job collectively. We um, in helping to retrain our, our warfighters to be able to come home to the mission back home with their families and their kids. I think, I think we, there many, many people would benefit, you know, over generations, I would say would benefit by finding ways to experientially get, you know, our, our veterans to be able to emote and be able to, be patient again. Mm. No, it's a good point you make because I think that's, you know, from the general public side, we have this fascination and, and obviously complete adoration and respect for, for our military um, men and women because it takes a different kind of human being to be able to, 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 to live in those circumstances, you know, and not to live the citizen lifestyle. But like you said, once they come back, they're no longer in those wartime circumstances. And like it takes different people where you now need to come back to that citizen lifestyle and that citizen way of thinking, because otherwise you won't you won't survive um, because you, you have to you have to be emotive and you have to feel things again. And um, I think that's a really, really good point you make. And I've definitely felt it with um with the dog that yeah like you said you have to put on a stupid a stupid voice and once you you do it after the third time of doing it with the dog you do actually feel better in yourself even though you just told them to be a good boy because they've sat down or whatever but you actually feel a bit a bit lighter just a little bit happier and it's a stupid voice that you would never use with a human unless they're under the age of five because you'd be called patronizing and you'd probably get a slap but um you know with the dog you do have to use it and you have to use it in public as well not just not just in the comfort and the safety of your own of your own home and and it is a big difference it does it does make you more emotive and i think it makes you more aware as well you know because especially when you have a puppy that they notice everything and everything's new for them and every smell every sound every texture is all new and when you're you know even I'm young and 25, but you get used to these things. The crunch of the leaf of a of the autumn leaves onto your foot is nothing new to you, so you just take it for granted. But when you're taking your dog out for a walk, all of those things are, are just like bewildering to the dog, and they take such interest in it. And then you kind of take interest in these things again, and it makes you it makes you really happy because I think it makes you aware of things that you've taken for granted, and you become more appreciative of really simple things thanks to the dog, I think, because they point it out to you like, oh my God, isn't this amazing? You're like, actually it is amazing, but I've just, like you said, I've become emotionally blunted to it. Yeah, I, you know, people talk about mindfulness and I think you know, paying attention to your dog, training your dog, uh, to me, it's, it's an incredible practice of mindfulness. Mm. And do you think, you know, you're kind of on the frontier of, of, of this, not research, well, I guess research, yeah, of, of yes. the power that dogs have. Um, and do you think that we're, how can I put this, that we're underestimating or that there's still that we have so much more to learn and more to un- un- uncover in terms of the potential that dogs, and maybe not just dogs, maybe let's branch out, that you know, animals in general have um and that we're really only scratching the surface. Yeah, I, I think we could, we could be a lot smarter about you know 
is, uh, there's a saying that uh, never overlook an answer to a problem that appears to be too simple. It happens all the time. You know, I think as we strive for high tech, yeah, everything, and 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 we're not seeing the dog underneath our nose. Um, yeah, it's uh, you know, my experience over the last thirty years. You know, I've I've watched veterans who had tried every medication under the sun and couldn't sleep because of night terrors and et cetera. Having a dog in their bed, a very nice, sweet dog in their bed, you know, getting six, eight hours of sleep for the first time in years, you know, is, uh, is really pretty significant accomplishment. Um, and, and maybe a bit off topic, but, you know, dogs, they're, they're, their scent, their, their olfactory systems are, you know, when the last I've heard 1.5 parts per trillion that they can detect. They've co-evolved with humans for over 30,000 years. Mm. Imagine what they've learned about humans over 30,000 years as the ultimate chemical sensing device mm. at our side, you know, yeah. growing with us. I, I've learned and I, I believe that dogs really... Uh, know a lot more about us than we'll ever know about them. You know, I, I think that they, they clearly know when we're in distress, um, even without behavioral cues. I've watched dogs show a propensity to identify humans who were a threat without any observable patterns of behavior that a trained social worker could pick up on. Mm. Uh, I, I, I think that's the most important aspect of dogs that we need to really learn or understand fully. Um, Cause I think they could help us know ourselves much, much, much more deeply. And, and uh, I think they could help us survive. <laughs> yeah. If we would just. Um, I, it's, a great, it's, a great way, it's a great way to put it that they know us much better than we know them. And I think, that point that you make, you know, the historical point is something that Meg, you know, points as she pointed out in our conversation. She definitely, um, at pains, she points out in, in her work and in her book is that, you know, these are lifelong generational, um, partners and that we've, I think, I think, like you said, we're always looking for high tech, the, this newest innovate innovations. What else can we do? AI, yada, yada, yada. And by doing so, I sometimes feel like we're, um, distancing ourselves from ancient wisdoms and now we're trying yeah. to come across them again rediscover ancient wisdoms as if they were new things as if they are innovative um methods mm -hmm. or, or learnings when in reality it's something that probably our predecessors from thousands of years ago would take for granted but we we've just become so detached from that be that you know in the, the natural world with plants or with animals um you know like in your in your field uh, i wanted yes. um wondered um you know with with these uh, veterans they create such a special bond with uh with their service um uh, animals and you know i think we all love our pets but i feel like to really to, to have a dog that helps you get over ptsd to have a dog that helps you reintegrate into society i i just i have to imagine that that bond is stronger than any bond a, someone a, a normal citizen can have with their pet in reality and yet with that you know whenever one of our pets dies it is like a family member dying and, it, and it's really hard to 
to get over how is it for a veteran because i might i imagine that that must be the same feeling but amplified by 100 because now their partner in crime is no longer there um do they get a service dog straight away is this is it like right this one i've got i need i need one now otherwise i don't know how i'm going to cope or do they almost find it disloyal to the image to the to the memory of their you know first service dog and does it take them a while to kind of accept that maybe an, another pet is what they need yeah i mean that's a great question and and i do i it's just awful for anyone you know it's 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 equally awful um, in this case, for a veteran with their service dog, it is, it's like the prescription, you know, um, and we do a lot of educating our veterans to understand what the dog is bringing to the table as far as, you know, the oxytocin release and, and how, so they fully understand what the dog's presence means and, and is doing, you know, underneath the surface, you know, so they, they get a full appreciation and by doing that, if, if when a dog passes, yes, we we put them to the front of the line for a successor dog. But I think being aware that it's it, it helps with this sense of you know loyalty. You know, should I get a dog right now? Yes, you should because you know this is not about a loyalty thing. It's about you know your oxytocin levels and your stress levels. And yes, this dog is not going to be the same as that dog, and you wouldn't want to compare them. But your uh, your your mental health and your your sleep and your, your stress levels, uh, all of that are uh, it's much deeper than you know a loyalty thing. This right. is a, a mental health thing. Yeah, and, and physical health. Of course, of course. Uh, before I let you go, I, I mean, on the podcast, we're a sucker for a success story, and I was just wondering if you had. Um, a particular story in mind. You have to give the name, you know, into if they for privacy reasons. But a particular story in mind, or a couple, where it kind of really demonstrates what it is that Warrior Canine Connection does, but also you know the power and the potential of these service dogs and their life changing abilities for these veterans. Yeah, that's the boy. There's so many, um, so many. Um, if I was going to pick, well, it's so hard to even pick one, but, you know, I had a, uh, an army staff sergeant that came to us to get a dog, um, for his kids. Um, as I talked to him, he was describing, you know, he'd been through he had three children, age five to 12 and had been to three different family therapists and, uh, things weren't getting better. You know, he was fine at work. He trained soldiers, but at home he would, you know, rather than yelling at his kids and losing his patience, he would isolate up in his room and that wasn't going well. And he was aware that his children were picking up his PTSD. You know, their legs were bouncing. And, um, and uh, as, as we spoke, you know, we, we discussed this, you know, fact that he had gone through all of this effective training that the army had put him through, you know, the reactivity, the emotional numbing aspect of it. And whenever we laid it out, uh, I laid it out with, you know, Hey, you were trained really well. We're not going to just give you a dog. You have to, you know, go through training to get one of our dogs and you'll have to, you know, 
practice this happy voice and you'll have to practice patience. But whenever we discussed, you know, basically maybe you were trained really well by the army to be that warfighter. It was a different perspective than he had heard. It wasn't, Hey, you have this disorder, you're sick, you're mentally ill. You know, it, it was more palatable for him to accept that he was trained really well. And the trainer training, you know, the army put him through was not the greatest training for dealing with young children. And, uh, it, it opened up other paths for him. Um, and to watch this family, uh, as we coached the father to practice his Minnie Mouse voice. And when those kids heard their dad sounding happy for the first time to be in that room and watch their eyes, you know, that there was hope because they heard what dad sounded like prior to deployment. And, uh, when we placed the dog with them, and I went to check on the dog the next day, first overnight. And I went to shake his hand and he pushed my hand out of the way and gave me a big hug and said, you turned me back into a hugger was uh, just an amazing moment. Um, and I've, I've watched, like I said, watching someone get sleep for the first night in a VA hospital when they had a dog stay overnight in the room and just that sense of like, wow, things can be back to normal. You know, there is a chance for me to, to be able to function. Hmm. Um, it's, it's watching that hope, you know, come back or what, you know, we had a Navy SEAL um, at Walter Reed that he wouldn't leave his room. And, and he'd been through five different hospitals and over three years. And his wife was told to arrange assisted living because it wasn't getting better. Wow. And this Navy SEAL, when we took this six month old golden retriever and said, we need to train this dog to become a service dog. Um, as he put puts it years later, he said, you gave me this no fail mission. You know, I'm a Navy SEAL. You know, I have to get the right words. I have to get the timing. And from not leaving his room to working with this dog all throughout the hospital in a matter of a couple of weeks and then taking the dog with our trainer on the, uh, the train, the metro down to the next town to have lunch. And to watch the these just incredible doctors um, just humbled by you know everything they, they you know they had tried everything and and now all of a sudden this sense of mission inspired this Navy SEAL to do something to engage back in his treatment he'd given up and uh, frankly a lot of our the veterans I worry most about are the ones that don't think they deserve to get better. Those who are really struggling with survivor's guilt that are torturing themselves um, or punishing themselves for, you know, um, what decisions they had to make or things that have happened. And, and they internalize it so much that it's destroying their life and it will continue to destroy their life and, until you find a way to flank that resistance to treatment and, uh, uh, our, our lead doc that works for Warrior Canine Connection, he's a, a acclaimed psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Kaufman, said that he calls it the Trojan dog program. You know, it's uh, we don't focus on here, train this dog because it'll be good for you. It's help us train this dog because we need these dogs trained to help other veterans. And that really is the uh, the secret sauce in many, many situations where 
those veterans who will do anything. They'll crawl through broken glass and fire to take care of another veteran. Right. But they won't do things to help themselves. And uh, you have to flank that. You yeah. have to get around that. Tapping into that sense of duty, right? Um, yes. Somebody help it's themselves. Key. It's key because all, the, all the king's horses and all the king's men, you know, uh, yeah. if that, that veteran doesn't want to uh, or isn't engaged in the process, it's not going to happen. Right. Perfect. And how, just um, the last question for me is how do you see the Warrior Canine Connection moving forwards? What, what's the, you know, how do you see it evolving as, as time goes on? Yeah, I think that um, this model is the uniqueness of the model is that with one dog, we can have many veterans benefit from even one dog over the two years it takes to train them. You know, there, there are hundreds of service dog programs around the world. Um, that I would like to help spread this model so that, you know, they, they can learn from our lessons, um, and our experience and adopt this model because it's, uh, it exponentially increases the impact that any organization, any one dog can have, um, you know, it, it, that's, that's really the future I see. Um, it, 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 it would be nice to know that one dog is not just helping one person, but maybe dozens and dozens. Beautiful. That, that, that that's what, that, that's what we're, we're, we're through the research that we're involved with and just through manualizing this and capturing the lessons learned over the last you know, years. It's, um, we hope to be able to share that and, uh, and grow the impact through sharing those lessons. Great stuff. Well, Rick, I really appreciate you um, for giving us your time and for coming on and the work and obviously for the work that you're doing. It's really great stuff. Um, we'll put all the links to the Warrior Canine Connection in the episode notes and the show notes. So anyone who wants to find out more, um, please feel free to click on those and there's all the information on the website. Um, but thank you once again for coming on. I really, really do appreciate it and keep up the good work. One, one, one thing that I would BEF kick myself for not mentioning is Please. we have a we have a live puppy cam on our website. I would urge people to tune in and watch the live puppy cam. Right. Um, you know, this past year has been just a fiasco for many, uh, and, and mostly for our nursing uh, uh, medical you know community, and we've been uh, receiving a lot of emails from nurses around the country that in the COVID wards are, you know, they have the puppy cam at their nurse's station. And uh, they're, they're saying that it's, it's offered a lot of stress relief, relief for them. And, uh, you know, the first time they're seeing their nurses smile in months when they see the puppy cam. So uh, watching the puppies is an oxytocin boost for everyone. So I just hope everyone can benefit uh, who needs to benefit from that. Perfect. Well, thank you for that because um, I wasn't aware of that myself. So yeah, well, there you have it, folks. Anyone who wants to watch the puppy cam and get in that oxytocin, um, you'll find that on the website as well. So uh, thank you once again, Rick. I really do appreciate you coming on. Seb, my pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Good luck with your Jack Russell. He'll keep you, <laughs> thank he'll, he'll, you. He'll, he'll I need you. it. I'll definitely yeah. need it. <laughs> he'll teach you a lot of Hi, guys. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review if you haven't already. Every review helps us climb the podcast charts so that even more of you can listen to our amazing guests. We really appreciate the support.
Remember to tune in next week. But until then, keep safe and have a good one.